Hello, welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. This is a special series on COVID-19. If you're listening to this, you're probably aware that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And I wanted to use my professional experience as a public health professional with a master's in public health to engage with other health professionals, both in the arenas of medicine and public health, to talk about this global pandemic talking about its impact, the vaccine, what we all can do to keep each other safe. So in this episode, I sat down with Dr. Sabrina Bent, board-certified anesthesiologist that has spent some time um, in various regions throughout the United States, um, as well as in the northern New Jersey area in April during their major surge of COVID cases. Let's listen in, and I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson, and I have the distinct pleasure to have um, one of the great medical minds, I think, in the world. Uh, Selfishly, I I have my own biases there, but um, with Dr. Sabrina Bent. Thank you, Dr. Bent, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. So let me just run out a little outline for our listeners side of a little bit um, to give them a journey of where we're going to go today. We'll talk a bit about Dr. Bent's background, um, how we know each other, um, as well as her professional background and sort of giving a little bit of context there. And then we'll get into a discussion. This is part of our COVID series. So we'll be talking about her experience now as sort of um, as a traveling physician and you kind of talk a little bit about more and more contract um, activities that you're doing and kind of takes you into different parts of the the U.S. and sort of what that experience has been like, um, as well as specifically related to, um, I'd love to hear more in in some depth in your experience in northern New Jersey um, in April during kind of the beginning of the pandemic when that region was really hit really heavily. I think a lot of of our listeners probably know about it from the news and sort of the New York, New Jersey sort of corridor and what that experience was like, what you saw, any take-home lessons around the pandemic and its seriousness that you can share with our folks. And it, and as you're traveling, um, also talking a bit about, you know, what are you seeing um, kind of being sort of on the front lines in the hospital settings across the U.S.? I think you said it, you're in Hampton, Virginia, as we're, as we're ha- recording this. Um, so what's going well? What are people doing well or not doing well? And some of your thoughts there and any other COVID thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. Sounds good. Awesome. So Maybe you can give a little context for our listeners um, about how we know each other and maybe a bit about your professional background. I am uh, Monique Henry Watson's uh, maternal aunt. I am a anesthesiologist. I've been in practice for over 25 years and have specialty training in pediatric anesthesiology. About 18 years of that has been at uh, academic institutions. And in the last three years, I've been working on a corporate level where I travel to different institutions that have anesthesia practices and help them through different difficulties, improve their systems, and then move on to the next practice that needs help. I have found uh, that it's been uh, enlightening to go to different practices in different states, get the feel for 
the uh, health professionals, the patients, the environment in the neighborhood and the communities, it's all different. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, what what kind of regions of the country have you been in? Um, we'll talk a bit more specific to the COVID-related uh, things, but sort of what regions do you cover? Is it all over the U.S. or is it more the Southeast or a little bit of everything? Uh, since COVID, I've been in uh, New Jersey, Georgia, Virginia, uh, Louisiana. I think that's... Gotcha. So a little bit of hitting the South and up, up the East Coast sounds like... Very interesting. Um, so you mentioned the New Jersey area, and I remember um, in our talking that uh, you had been in the northern New Jersey in uh, around April time frame, sort of just after, just as the world was sort of like really, as, as people around here talk about, the world shut down in March and sort of a lot of areas hit heavy pockets of, you know, a massive spread of COVID um, and cases and really... Um, significant symptoms and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you can talk a bit about that experience. What was it like going there? Sort of maybe what were some of your expectations going there? And then versus the reality, did they match up? And some maybe some of your thoughts in general. So when I volunteered to go to Northern New Jersey, we were just about less than 20 miles from New York City, a very metropolitan sort of area. I work as anesthesiologist uh, in the operating room generally. Uh, however, I found out sort of by surprise when I got to New Jersey that they didn't want me to work as an anesthesiologist specifically, but as an intensive care unit doctor to take care of COVID patients that had been intubated and were in the ICU. And I will say in the ICU as a relative, I guess a relative uh, status, because there are so many people with COVID in a, which was actually a small, small-ish community hospital, that the hospital was virtually entirely filled with COVID patients. Um, they were coming in like, so fast that people could barely keep up. Um, they, a number of ICU beds that the hospital normally has uh, would be about 20 or so. And mm-hmm. while I was there uh, in April, we probably had about uh, 80 to 90 ICU patients. And by ICU, Patients, I meant intubated patients. And they were the breathing tube and all that. <clears throat> yeah, they were on ventilators. I personally never got assigned to any patients that weren't intubated. Be- Not that there weren't people that weren't intubated that were very sick with COVID, but our responsibility was just to try to get the sickest of COVID patients that were very sick on ventilators and try to get them to survive. And uh, it, for me, it was a unique situation because it was sort of like a war zone. Conditions um, mm. were um, extremely different from usual everyday practice. Now I had to learn or maybe relearn and learn a lot about uh, caring for patients in the ICU insofar as 
I have specific training and expertise in taking care of very sick patients, patients on ventilators, patients who are on inotropic or drips to help their heart and lungs function better. Um, I am very familiar with ventilators and managing ventilators to help improve oxygenation and removal of carbon dioxide from the lungs. You know, I have a lot of the parts. Uh, you know, I know how to uh, control the airway. I know how to put in invasive monitoring arterial lines and central lines and things that intensive care unit patients need and utilize. The parts that I didn't have recent experience in was in the full management of a patient from their nutrition and consults to other specialties like the gastroenterologist, cardiologist, uh, nephrologist, pulmonologist, other people that, you know, the total care of the patient, I had to manage and make decisions, change their medicines, read all of their labs, uh, order special labs, look at their chest x-rays every day, sort of be the, the uh, quarterback for the patient. Mm. But on top of that, which was extremely hard, was we were a surrogate family for patients. Mm. Many COVID people <clears throat> in the hospital and people not wanting to expose people unnecessarily. Visitors weren't allowed in the hospital, so they would, people would drop off their loved ones or have them transported to the ER by ambulance, and they would never see them again. Hmm. Luckily, some of the patients did make it out the hospital to see their family again. But some of my patients um, maybe had gone a month or weeks without ever talking to their loved ones. They were on a ventilator for weeks and days and days. And um, of course, family members were concerned about their uh, people and they would call and say, how's my brother or my mother or my sister or my dad? You know, how are they doing today? And they went quite naturally to talk to their doctors. And um, you were put into a position of saying, you know, your you know, family members doing better today or having to call them and say, I'm sorry, but they've had a setback. I'm not sure if they're going to make it through the night. Or even worse, to say that I'm very sorry to tell you that your loved one has passed away. We did everything we could. You know, they were, we try to make them comfortable. Um, but it, I'm very sorry for the, your loss. And it's unusual for a physician to have to be, let's say, there for them. You know, people who ask you to pray for them. And being a Christian, that was an easy ask, but I felt sometimes a lot of responsibility that mm -hmm. uh, between myself and the nurses, we were like everything to the patient. Yeah. Um, and to be compassionate with care and try to do the very best, high standards of care. But we ran into problems with PPE, um, especially that early in the pandemic. There were most hospitals. Uh, don't keep the types of supplies and numbers of N95 masks and gowns and, you know, goggles, 
face shields, right? Appropriate right. protection. And um, unfortunately, I think that the government, particularly the federal government, was slow to respond and failed, and I think even to this day have failed uh, enact the, uh, I think they sort of that as a DPA or Defense Protection Act, basically where the government can tell companies, hey, you need to start making face masks. Right. You need to start. You know, there was a big thing about ventilators, and they, we did need ventilators. We were working with army ventilators that have very limited functions. We were using devices that aren't normally used for long-term ventilation and things and trying to make it work. But uh, there were basic needs. It was a little, I might say, even scary or intimidating because although you and I, as well as the other healthcare professionals were there to help save lives, we didn't want to get sick with COVID and potentially right. our own life at the same time. Yeah. So our PPE, we felt, was very vital. Um, part of the reason why I was at this one hospital is because the intensive care unit doctor came down with COVID and he was out mm. of use for weeks. Right, yeah. And there were doctors that were intubated and doctors that have died and nurses from COVID, at, even at that time, in comparison, for example, in my normal day-to-day -day in a regular hospital, maybe once a day you hear a code blue, maybe twice a day. There were a lot of days, like virtually every day, that there was a code blue, meaning like a cardiac or pulmonary arrest, a person was near death, like every 30 minutes. Mm. That's like a lot of stress, like on your, to be on that, because just for context, I've shadowed you and other doctors um, in my days of doing clinical research before my current job and just been in different hospital settings. And that's something that, you know, sort of similar to the movies, right? Like our television where code blue as code is called and everyone who's available and able to rush to that, that patient to solve it, they're they're there with the carts and trying to do everything they can to revive or or sustain the life of this person. So I can't. It's almost hard to fathom that, you know, like you said, it happens one or twice. But to be in that almost at the half hour, like someone else is coding, it's just a very intense emotionally and just from an adrenaline sort of perspective. I can't. I can hardly imagine. It's so crazy. And so it's tough. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things, do you think there are things you mentioned that was sort of like in April, um, as you're traveling now, you're in, as, as we mentioned in the beginning, you're in Hampton, uh, Virginia. Are you seeing that maybe there's some peak improvements as far as where I know that it's, this is, we're in a second wave now deep into it in some places, just starting it in others. Um, are you feel like you're sort of like, in uh, Groundhog Day and that it's sort of the same or you think we're, is there a better grasp that you're noticing from the places you've gone to or varies maybe? Well, I think, you know, early in April, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We weren't sure of all the best ways to treat it. We still had, you know, 
even my ICU patients for a very long while were on the hydroxychloroquine and things like this. As the president said, oh, I think that is effective. And he had no scientific basis to prove it and turned out that that wasn't a good drug for people. Um, they eventually stopped using it. But, you know, we didn't have our treatment regimens figured out and what worked and what didn't work as much. It was like a learning process for the healthcare community because they hadn't dealt with a virus or a disease like this before, and especially on such a high level. So I think we've gotten better at treating the disease. And so I think that the survival, even in the severe cases, is better than what it was initially. But clearly, based on the uh, current statistics of you know, nearly a couple hundred thousand people being infected every day, you know, over 3,000 deaths every day, that there's still a lot of treatment and um, prevalence of the disease. It's probably worse than ever. We're just a little bit better at managing it. We've also learned how to survive a little bit with you know, at first, let's shut everything down. Let's figure out where we are. And I think that was the right initial response. Obviously, there's been dramatic economic and social change that has occurred on every level of everyone's life, from school to work to shopping and eating and socialization. And economically, people lost their jobs. Uh, people are struggling sometimes in certain industries, obviously, to just make ends meet. And there are a lot of catastrophes going on in the world economically and so forth. So I think we've gotten better at managing it, but some of the basic things that could have taken place early on as we knew it, like maybe we didn't know that much about masks, but we've known for months about, you know, masks make a difference, social distancing. Um, and still people don't get it. There's still, I think obviously we're better at wearing masks. I think uh, we're in the neighborhood of over 70% of people wear masks. The problem comes in is it doesn't take a lot when you're talking about 20 or 30% of 350 million people mm -hmm. in a mask. And each one of those people are interacting with a bunch of other people. At the, um, you know, I fly a lot of airplanes because I travel to different places sometimes every week in and out of airports. And I see people like, well, we have to wear the mask on the plane because that's the new rule. But when you get on the plane, you get people who take it off as soon as they get in their seat. People who wear their mask below their nose where that's not helping anything is you might as well not have the mask on. People who think they're doing okay because they have trouble breathing, so they buy or get a mask that has a one-way valve. It's a one-way valve to protect that person from breathing in stuff, but they're blowing their germs all over the whole room. Mm -hmm. So simple things like if we had the support of the government on both federal, state, and local level in the to really mandate masks. Now, clearly enforcement is hard, but
but it makes a difference if the people that you consider leaders say it's important or necessary, then if you say, oh, it's no big deal, it's no worse than the flu, look at me, I survived it, oh, I can't be bothered wearing a mask, I'm too important. And then there's uh, what I call virus fatigue, I think other people use that similar term, pandemic fatigue. People are tired of being locked up, bots up. So they're, you know, convening in larger groups. Some people take it out of hand. You know, last night I saw something on the news somewhere, I believe in North Carolina, where there was hundreds of people, young, probably 20s type people at some club partying with no masks on. And this is, you know, months later after people should know better. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how to explain all that sociology of how people um, completely give up on what you know to be wrong or intelligent enough to know it's not right. And then there's responsibility on the owners of these establishments for allowing it to go on. And maybe I get it a little bit. Maybe these people are broke and they're trying to pay their rent. And they're like, hey, I'll take a chance on these people's lives, take their money at the door, let them buy drinks at the bar. But uh, the reality is, is they're being like contributors to the deaths and contributors to this virus, keeping us on lockdown, keeping us yeah. limited in our <clears throat> interactions. People just don't seem to get it. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny because I posted something on Facebook. I don't know. Um, make sure listeners follow at at the Victory Pod on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram. But you know that I basically posted that you know the longer you don't comply with social distancing and mask wearing, the longer we're gonna have to do social distancing and mask wearing. Um. So, yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, that's part of why we do in this series on COVID-19 to give people the most information from, you know, qualified medical people more than just um, a few minutes on the news and just giving that that kind of information. It's, it's funny you actually bring up the flu thing because that's something I've seen from people um, online. Oh, it's no different than the flu um, and sort of that. Are you hearing that, seeing that from patients or, or around the communities that you're you're working in? Uh, so it's it's true. There are people who get COVID. There's people in our family who have had COVID. And it has seemed to uh, friends and, and so forth that it is maybe for them, thank God, uh, so far has been mostly, yeah, like a bad code, like a thing. But the difference is most of the people that I know personally, they they recognize and respect COVID, they quarantine and they try to help prevent it from getting worse or maybe infecting other family members. But then there's another level. So there is a large percentage of asymptomatic carriers, people who don't realize they have COVID. It's so benign and then its effects to that particular person that's what's dangerous. And some people, I don't think they intend to be doing inappropriate things. Um, I think, especially these days, and for months, that there's a, if you clearly were coughing and had a fever, hey, it's COVID, maybe I should stay home. 
Those aren't the people that are causing the trouble uniformly, I believe. It's the people who do have very few symptoms. The problem with this virus is that you don't know because you're spreading the virus all over the place by not wearing your mask, by not socially distancing, by not washing your hands frequently, um, which also helps. And um, But what you're doing, you don't know who's going to be the one on the ventilator, the one that's mm-hmm. going to die. But right now, there's no good predictability about who's going to die for sure, who's going to um, have a serious outcome. Even though they live, they may you know, still have morbid consequences, you know, bad, you know, brushes with near death or end up in the hospital, things like that. And you just can't predict it. Now, there are risk factors like kidney disease, pulmonary disease, obesity, hypertension, um, immunodeficient people, people who have risk factors that increase their likelihood of having a bad outcome. Unfortunately for our, us, and I say us because I'm part of, of the community of people of color, unfortunately for the people of color, meaning mostly uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, American Indians, we're at higher risk of having these comorbid situations and therefore higher risk of having a morbid or really bad outcome from getting infected with COVID. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because of the health disparities that exist in the United States and have existed for decades. Yep. That we usually, and I mean people of color, have less access to care, are less likely to be able to get to the doctor, take the medicines, afford the, do- the medicines, and achieve health care. Then we have socioeconomic things like maybe more of us uh, live in apartment buildings instead of single family homes. And so spreading the virus, people up and down elevators, touching buttons and uh, common areas and things like that. Uh, Not having public, uh, having to use public transportation, which is like a, you know, a little Petri dish uh, for passing the vaccine on. I can only imagine if, Every single day I had to go to work on the subway or a train where there's hundreds of people that are almost impossible to social distance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that affect us more. But this but be clear that this virus knows no race or sets or any type of uh, cultural differences or any, you know, that doesn't care if you're part of the. LGBTQ community. It doesn't care who you are. It will infect all of us. And the only reason why some of us are doing better is maybe less um, virulent virus. Maybe that there's some more uh, pathogenic viruses out there that it's mutated. And, you know, maybe you get the really virulent virus. Maybe you get a low dose of the virus. Maybe your immune system's a little better. But I, it's my feeling that there's not like genetic differences, but, you know, if you get in the, the main focus of COVID is the lungs and pulmonary problems, and these things lead to sepsis, and, you, and then that starts to involve all the organ systems, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys. And if you already have a disease of those organ systems, it 
quite naturally might make it worse than now on top of uh, lung disease, now you're in kidney failure. You know, I saw that type of thing often. Mm-hmm. And then there's mm-hmm. another thing that's new with this virus that, that hasn't been talked a lot about, and I want to say something about that too, is there's an increased uh, hypercoagulability, which means increased risk of developing blood clots. Mm-hmm. And apparently this risk can last well beyond the illness, like and it can happen in people who have had that asymptomatic COVID. And a lot mm. of them don't know it. And there's a lot of healthcare professionals that believe that um, people having strokes and heart attacks and things like that may be having those things, not because of nature and nurture and natural consequences, but maybe they had COVID, they had this hypercoagulable or increased risk of blood clotting type things. And you know, little blood clots are part of what causes you to have a heart attack, to have a stroke. And, and, and there's been people who have died of this subsequently after having survived the virus. People mm-hmm. who were hospitalized who probably died as a consequence of some of the clotting that occurred. Um, so we need to know more about that. Uh, I personally have been telling people I know who get COVID to stay on the baby aspirin every day for like a year until we get this figured out because it has very low side effects, but may help if you have developed COVID that you might take that as a little prophylactic. Now, I have no proof that that works, but it's one of those things that can't hurt. It's very little hurting, might help, and it's worth trying out. Definitely something we'll capture in the the show notes uh, as some tips, just as as a general something to look into. And we'll see as more research comes out about you know, the CDC and the associated hospitals and research entities that they work with. Um, there's more and more information coming out every day. <clears throat> and it's actually exciting in a way um, for as a scientist and a person of, of STEM background yourself, I think it, at, at the sort of, I can't even call it a silver lining, but something that is at least I think encouraging for people in that all of this is at the forefront and there's and it brings people's knowledge and medical knowledge a lot out there. The information at least is out there, whether people take it in and absorb it and actually apply it to their lives. But I think I've gotten more questions about how vaccines work and, you know, how does that go and how the development and, you know, what is, you know, how is diseases transferred, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting. Um, any other COVID-19 thoughts, comments that you'd like to talk about? So uh, one thing that's sort of newish hot is the new vaccines that have been improved by the FDA, the CDC, and things like that. And uh, my comments are that these are very new novel vaccines that have never been commercially produced before. Uh, And I'm talking about the the current ones that are either just approved or expected to be approved in the United States in probably the next few weeks at the latest, the messenger RNA vaccines. This is a new technology. It's an exciting technology. 
that's my extreme hope that it will be everything that they say it is that it has 95% or 90 over 90% effectiveness and that it's safe and it's gonna help us eradicate the COVID virus and not just in the United States, but in the world. But what I want people to know and think about is one is that it's gonna take a long time to vaccinate, let's say over a couple hundred million people twice. Right now they're recommending two Two injections with two doses a month apart. And being a former researcher, you know, it's always been hard in medicine to get people to come back and come back timely mm-hmm. within a month for follow-up to get another dose because, you know, they have to take off work or, you know, they have to wait in line or who knows on how this is going to go down. But we aren't going to get everybody vaccinated immediately. And then there's my, as a researcher, concerns. Like I said, it's my hope that they really got this right and it's completely safe. I do have concerns about how fast it was developed and they, you know, may have more today than they have, you know, a week ago, but the studies that they have shown health professionals have indicated that they've tested over 40 some thousand people in this phase two, three trials with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, but only And people are randomized to a placebo group and to a vaccine group. And they showed some great differences and some great, very effective things. But there's so much we don't still know. Out of that, let's say 50,000 people that have been uh, volunteers, about 80% of those volunteers, and this is just some data that they put out by the CDC, but... uh, like 80, over 80% were white people. Mm. And only less than 10% of the volunteers were black people. 26% were Hispanic. But that's partly because they did the study in, in uh, South America, I think, uh, one of the large sites. Only less than 1% were Native Americans or Alaskans. Only 4% were Asian. Only 20 2% were over the age of 65, which is considered a high-risk group. So a lot of us people, the people of color, only made up about 20-some percent, you know, of the full study population. Mm-hmm. So we don't know maybe, is it the same in Blacks and whites? And you might say, well, you just said previously that you don't believe there's genetic differences, but that they also, I haven't been able to find is how many of those volunteers had asthma, had lung or the disease, had conditions, all these yeah. pre-existing conditions, hypertension, and on multiple medications. How many of those, you know, subjects, how many of those white people had it? How many of any of those people had it, and, and what were their outcomes on, what were their side effects? And so when you're considering you're going to uh, vaccinate millions of people, yep. the, the one of the most common w- reasons of not finding things that exist in research is undersampling. 
that maybe they just haven't tested enough people to find out what the side effects are. Um, it was quite interesting that in the UK, like virtually on the first day, they start making it a, a vaccine available in the United Kingdom. Then they figured out that if you have severe allergies or reactions to allergies, like, you know, people who may have anaphylactic reactions to, to peanuts, I don't know, what, let's peanuts say. or something. Yeah. Oh, you shouldn't take this virus. Well, so they're saying vaccine, that in the first yeah. probably 20,000 people, they never picked up on that. It only happened. And I'm not saying that this wasn't the net, you know, whatever. But the idea is that when you start testing and giving things to more people, we're going to find out more about it. Now, a good thing for the average day American is that the order of receipt of the vaccine from like first responders, healthcare workers, people in nursing homes, that by the time it gets to the average everyday person, we'll mm -hmm. know a lot of that information. Yeah. But I think from talking to healthcare professionals, people who know a little bit about science, they're a little nervous about taking the vaccine because they feel like it may not have been tested right or appropriately or that we know enough about it. So yeah. it's surprising to me how many healthcare professionals, uh, including myself, have concerns. I'm hoping that it's going to be great, but I feel like we didn't get full, full good testing in a diverse population with multiple comorbidities. And maybe we could talk really quick, and I, and I think I'll address this with one of my other interviewers. Um, some of the challenges there, um, you know, my mother does, um, they're doing different clinical trials, whether it be for this or that or the, the other. There's challenges, and maybe you can speak to it as a, you know, working more in academia in the past and researchers and all that. The challenge around getting people of color um, to agree to participate is a real thing, right? Like there's a real um, noted challenge in not just COVID research, but um, the insert research here. Um, what are your thoughts there? Um, I know there's some, there's historically, just to give context, historically speaking, um, I'll speak to the African-American community. This is one I'm a part of and I can speak most most um, knowledgeably about is that there's a long history of we talked earlier about um, poor out health outcomes that exist for a variety of reasons, whether it be social economic status, you know, access to health care, access to the proper nutrition, um, all of these kind of things, um, and that combined with poor out health outcomes and health disparities that exist, that combined with the history of and history of mistreatment um, to minority populations in as recent as, you know, far but reaching as the Tuskegee um, experiments to, um, you know, mass uh, sterilization that's gone on in the Native American communities. Um, still some ongoing, I want to say within the last five years, some there was some sterilization, uh, involuntary sterilization of um, in inmate, female inmates that's gone on and been reported upon. So there's a history. So right in some ways, rightfully so for people to be suspicious or apprehensive of the medical community at large from a 30,000 foot view. Um, and I wonder your thoughts on that, how that then weighs into to your point of their 
level of participation within these studies leading up to this vaccine or other other things and sort of what your thoughts are there. So clearly that's a big problem. It's not necessarily the researchers specific problem. These uh, disparities in health science research have, as you mentioned, existed long before COVID research started. And there is a general mistrust. Um, unfortunately, in the, let's say, uh, communities of people who are people of color, um, people who are in lower socioeconomic classes, or people who are at, at risk sort of populations or vulnerable populations, we like to say in research. It's hard to have trust because the trust goes back not just decades, but centuries in many ways. Um, People of color have been taken advantage of uh, in many ways by the majority or people who are not of color. And most of the people, because it, it, I, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of the problems with that go back to sort of systemic racism. And people hate to say like that's a thing or, oh, it doesn't happen, but the reason, you know, why we haven't trusted people is because it's actually pretty fresh in our, you know, lifetime in the United States. I'm just going to speak to the United States because that's what I know the most about. But it's not that long ago that um, we had to go in separate bathrooms and had to get in the back of the bus and not allowed in the hospital except for on the blackboard. And, you know, me being a physician, I recently had a, like a meeting with some of the alumni from my medical school on a Zoom. And, you know, for over 30 years, and I'm speaking of my medical school, and this is the same story across the country. For more than 30 or 40 years, they've been working on trying to increase the diversity of medical student classes and increasing the number of minority physicians in medicine. Well, over 30 years ago, the number of minority physicians in medical medicine was like 6%. And the number 30 years later is still 6%. The number of women is still just a couple of percent. Uh, so with all the programs to try to help things, it hasn't improved because people generally like to hire and, and accept into residency programs and to work in private practices and stuff. And they like to work with people that look like them still today. And we don't get treated 100% the same as the people who aren't of color. And then when you add the systemic racism that perpetuates through the community where we've been taken advantage of. And, the, and the, don't, you know, sometimes you think of slavery, like, oh, that must have only been in the 1800s. But it was like 400 years of slavery, 400 years of slavery. And a lot of people, they think of slavery, oh, oh that was probably just in the 1800s. That was probably maybe 100 years. But in this country, it was like over 400 years. So you have to fight and where we were mistreated, lied to, taken advantage of. The American Indians, same way, taken advantage of. You know, the way 
Some people treat immigrants, putting people in cages. Here in recent history, treating them, separating kids and parents, it's very hard to trust the government, hard to trust people of authority. When we've had centuries of abuse, it's like passed down from generation to generation that these people aren't always on a level ground with you. They aren't always looking out for your best interest. It's mm-hmm. just plain and simple. I think goes back to that. And it's very hard to overcome. And I don't think that researchers are intentionally leaving these people out. It's just that we don't trust to sign up. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Ooh, it's a lot. We can't solve it all here, but we can at least inform people and we do our best. So, um. Thank you so much for spending some of your evening with us. I know you've worked a full day and ready to get on about your day, but thank you so much um, for taking the time. I think it's really good information that you've shared with folks. I'll be sure to capture as much as I can in the show notes as well. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. It's a really important thing. And the more people we can get the word out to for people to be safe, um, wear their masks, socially distance. Because we can't definitely count on the vaccine to really make its effect for months and months from now. Yeah. Okie dokie. So thanks again to Dr. Bent for taking time out of her busy, busy schedule to sit down with us. So I hope you got a lot out of that conversation that you can share with your friends and family. Please share this podcast with everyone you know, even your enemies. You can find us across social media at The Victory Pod, and that's T-H-E-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So we look forward to hearing your comments, your thoughts. Send me a note. If you have questions we want to ask future guests, let me know. And you can also support The Victory Podcast via a couple of different ways. You can buy some of our merchandise by going to thevictorypodcast.com. Lots of great t-shirts and stickers, all kinds of great stuff as we're getting up for the holiday season. As well, you can also join the Patreon and you'll be getting early access to content, um, some exclusive content, exclusive uh, merchandise, all the great things. So check us out there and find our merch and Patreon page at thevictorypodcast.com. So I'll end this episode as I do every episode. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.